Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. Also, folks, is it, if this is your first time listening to the Real Leaders podcast, I've got a little call to action button here. I'd like you to press. I'm trying to get 50 reviews, Dev. I'm trying to get 50 reviews by the end of August. We can do that. We can do that. We can do right. that. We're at 31 <laughs> right now. We're at 20 last week. We're on a roll. Let's keep the momentum going, folks. If you've listened to this podcast or this is your first time, go on the Apple Podcast, leave a review, and let other people know what to expect when they come to this awesome show. But that being said, I don't think that you can prepare for something like that, but understanding that life can change at any given moment. What those things showed me early on that I went through is that life rarely goes as we want it to go. And I think that's why it's so crucial to continue to improve yourself uh, mentally, physically, and spiritually so that you can be prepared for whenever you face adversity. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that was the voice of former NFL defensive end, current cancer awareness advocate, and proud father, Devin Still, who joins the show to help us prepare for unexpected adversity. On today's episode, Still discloses the obstacles he overcame on his journey to the league, the playbook he used after his daughter was diagnosed with cancer, and his perspective on being a father and its impact on his newfound purpose. With respect to all 500 or so leaders I've had the privilege to interview over the years, folks, this may be my favorite podcast I have ever been a part of, and I hope you are as locked in as I was for this incredible story. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, put your game faces on and please welcome the real Devin Still. Enjoy. Let's do the countdown here in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is former NFL defensive end, current cancer advocate, keynote speaker, entrepreneur, 
and proud father, Mr. Devin Still. Devin, thanks for being with us today. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you, Devin. I'm a big football fan myself. I know your story. I hope our audience knows it as well and gets it down to a T. So the first question I have for you today, Dev, is where has the game of football taken you? It's really taken me beyond my wildest dreams. Uh, I grew up in a place called Wilmington, Delaware. It's a a very small city on the East Coast. And to be honest, it's stricken with a a lot of drugs and violence. And it's not a place that you see a lot of people make it out of. Um, But once I started playing football, it really opened up those doors for me to make it out and see what the world had to offer because I didn't think the world had much to offer growing up in the environment I I, I grew up in. But during high school, um, I started to get good at football. I started playing football when I was around 13 years old. And by the time I was a junior in high school, I had over 50 scholarships to the top D1 schools in the country. And that was crazy to me. It blew my mind because when I first started playing football, I sucked. Like I, I was really bad. But I think if you you know, practice makes progress. You continue to get better as long as you're willing to put in the time and effort. And I was one of those people who was willing to put in the time and effort to perfect my craft. And like I said, by my junior year, I had over 50 scholarships and I decided to go to you know Penn State um, to play under the legendary Joe Paterno. And, you know, just everything I learned from being on that campus, everything I learned from being coached by a legend and you know, being able to just see the world and travel as we went to different games, it really opened my eyes to the opportunity the world has to offer. Now, Dave, let's let's take a step back really quick. When you're starting out, who got you into football and what were some of the lessons you learned at an early age? So so my dad, I grew up, I wanted to be an NBA player. I, I love basketball. My dad played basketball when he was younger. But Every Sunday, he would sit down on the couch and he would watch football. And I hated it because I couldn't watch what I wanted to watch on TV because we only had one TV in the house at that time. So Sundays was all about football. I couldn't get my dad off the couch to go anywhere because he was so hooked on the games. So I hated football when I was a kid. But as I got older, um, I started to surround myself with people who like to play sports. And initially, my dad wouldn't let me play sports because my grades were so bad. And I was getting into a lot of trouble because my parents got divorced when I was in the third grade. And it completely flipped my life upside down. And I was doing a lot of negative things just to get the attention of my parents because I was really hurting inside about, you know, what we were going through. So I wanted to play sports at a young age, but my dad wouldn't let me until I got my grades and my act right. And around sixth grade, my dad took me out to try out for football. I remember it was for the Claymont Falcons. And when I initially started playing, I wasn't allowed to play because I was over the weight limit. You see, back in those times, and literally you have to be a certain weight limit or else they won't let you out on the field because they think you might hurt other people. So my first year of trying out organized football, I didn't get to play not one snap the whole entire time. In fact, uh, my first practice, I remember they had me at linebacker and I remember it was a play where they handed the ball off to the running back and it was like the Red Sea party because like everybody disappeared and he ran straight into my chest, put his helmet in my chest and knocked my breath out. And I remember in that moment, I wanted to give up playing because I'm like, oh, this is not for me. I'm sitting here laying on the ground crying. I can't breathe. But my dad told me to go back out there not to quit just because things got hard, but go out there and learn the sport and continue to improve. So the first lesson I learned from playing football was no matter how hard things get, don't just give up, go out there and continue to get better. 
Now, Debbie, touch on this a little bit. What were some of the influences that were out there that maybe drew you away from sports or mm-hmm. things that you said you were trying to get attention? What were some of these things and really break this down to give our audience a picture of where you grew up? Yeah. So, like I said, Wilmington is a place that's stricken with a, a lot of drugs and violence is actually being ranked as the number one murder capital uh, a lot of times these past couple of years. So, um, like I said, it was a lot of drugs. I seen friends uh, die, see friends go to jail. But for me, a lot of my troubles came from school. You know, not getting good grades, getting straight D's, getting kicked out of school, fighting all the time. Uh, I I felt like I was taking out a lot of my aggression towards my parents' divorce on people around me. Because as a kid, you feel like you can't say nothing to your parents. Nobody wants to hear what the kid has to say. Nobody wants to hear what the kid is going through. So I took out a lot of my aggression at school just for little stuff, just fighting people over little stuff because I didn't know how to express what I was going through. So I was getting a lot of trouble in the school um, and just hanging around the wrong people, doing the wrong things. And my life really changed around like fifth grade because during fifth grade, I ended up uh, stealing a bike in front of my school. And I talk about this in my book. I drove, I rode the book back, uh, the bike back to my house. And I ended up seeing this guy in a, a tank top shirt and, you know, jean shorts and long white socks walking up the street towards me. And I knew that was my dad's favorite outfit. So I knew it was him and somebody must have called him to let him know what I just did. So I remember taking off uh, down the street trying to get away from my dad. I ended up having to go to the uh, police department um, and I was in a jail cell for like, I don't even know, like five hours as a fifth grader. And I remember before they put me in the cell, I went to get fingerprinted by the officer and he was like, do you know why I'm putting on gloves before I fingerprint you? And I was like, yeah, because you don't want to get your fingerprints on the machine. He was like, no, I don't want to touch criminals. And it just hit me when he said that. I was like, fifth grade. First, I felt two different ways. First, I felt like he didn't see me for who I was. Like at fifth grade, there's no way you're a criminal. You're a little kid. Instead of just asking me, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you acting this way? then I was automatically just labeled as a criminal. Um, And I didn't want to be that. Just sitting in that that jail cell and seeing those words replaying my mind over and over again, I decided that when I got out of there, then I was going to change my life and try to do something better and not head down the path that I was on. Now, Dad, it seems like you've reached a threshold like that numerous times throughout your career, throughout your life. Let's dive in now to accepting that scholarship, going to Penn State, uh, being under the tutelage of one of the best coaches uh, the college football right. has ever seen. Walk me through freshman year. What happened to you? Give us the breakdown. Yeah, so freshman year, I was excited just walking on that campus and, you know, seeing it. It was like a different world to me. Like I said, I grew up in an environment that was stricken with drugs and violence. And Happy Valley was really Happy Valley. It's like everybody on campus was happy. But my, my football career got started up was started off to a great start. Um, I was having a, a great training camp. I had a chance to play as a true freshman. And if anybody are, are Penn State fans or know Joe Paterno, true freshmen don't really get to play um, as, you know, their first year at Penn State. But I was having such a great breakout training camp that I had a chance to. But during one of the practices uh, towards the end, I remember something in me. I was standing on the sideline and something told me 
to say a prayer uh, for protection as I went in. So I remember, you know, just asking God to watch over me as I went to finish this practice hall. So I, my coach told me to go into the practice. So I go in and it was the screenplay. And I remember the quarterback throwing the ball to a running back who was running down the sideline. And I went chasing after him. And one of the linemen grabbed me by my shoulder and my left knee got stuck. My left foot got stuck in the turf. It twisted and I blew out my MCL, my ACL. And I was done for the, the first year. I couldn't play. I had to do a, about a year of rehab in order to get back out on the football field. And I was crushed. I was crushed for two reasons. One, I realized that all the hard work that I put in up until that point was wasted. That I wasn't going to, you know, be one of those uh, incoming freshmen who had a chance to go out there and live his dream playing in front of 110,000, you know, fans in Beaver Stadium. My, my dreams were old. And two, I struggled a lot with my my faith because the exact opposite happened of what I had just prayed for. I prayed for protection, but yet I'm sitting here on the ground with a busted knee. Um, so I went through a lot mentally that first year, but I decided that, you know, I was going to do what I needed to do to get back out on the football field, that injuries come with this game, and I just had to accept it and move forward. So that's exactly what I did. And after a year of rehab, I was able to make it back during the following year's training camp. And all I had to do was make it through one more scrimmage of training camp, and I finally get to, you know, run out of that tunnel at Beaver Stadium and play in front of all those fans and watch my dreams come true. But during this scrimmage, uh, one of my teammates got thrown into my leg and it snapped in half, and I ended up having to get rushed to the hospital where a doctor had to put uh, a plate and 10 screws in my leg. And as you can imagine, I was completely crushed at this point because – I had just accepted what I had to go through with the ACL, MCL injury. And I put in, I can't even tell you how much work I put in. I put in a lot of work to get back out on the football field. That ACL injury was one of the toughest injuries I ever had. And to see my dreams derailed and snatched away from me for the second year in a row, it, it completely crushed me. Now, Dad, I worked in college sports. I worked for Rich Rod for a year in Arizona and then with the women's basketball team after that. And we had players go through similar things. It's part of the sport. You're right. But I've seen players quit. I mean, I've seen players. We had Ray Smith. He tore his ACL three years in a row. We had yeah. uh, Ken Griffey's daughter, Taryn, who tore her ACL and MCL three times in a row as well. Devastating. Mm-hmm. And you, even when you come back, it's dev- it's it's like... I don't want to hurt it again. You know what I'm saying? So what was the motivation for you to get back there? Because a lot of people don't have that extra gear after that happens for a second or third time. Yeah. I mean, I I think that every, you know, champion, every successful leader has always felt the urge to give up when things get hard. But the the great leaders, the the people who end up becoming successful are the people who have a reason to continue to move forward. Um, I said after... You know, getting hurt for the second time, there were times where I wanted to give up. There were times where I, I literally sat in my room crying, wondering why, why me? Why did I have to continue to go through this? Why do I have to sit here and watch everybody that I came into college with go out there and live their dreams? And I'm stuck here with a cast on my leg. And it was one weekend where I, I was thinking about giving up and back to Delaware and just saying, forget it, because I wasn't you know, a scholar. I didn't really care that much about school during that time. I cared about playing football. And if I couldn't play football, what was I doing here? 
Um, but before I made that decision, I went back home just to, you know, clear my mind about everything that was going on so that I can make a, a, a decision based off of logic and not just emotion. And um, when I went there, I went out to a party with some of my friends. And in, in Delaware, there's always a shooting. There's always something that happens after a party. And I don't even know why I used to go to these parties when I was a kid, but that's just not thinking right. But I decided to go out with my friends this night and I ended up watching somebody get shot in the head and they died. And in that moment, I realized that whatever pain and whatever suffering I was going at Penn State, I had to be willing to fight through that pain so that my family didn't hurt anymore. And what I meant by that, what I mean by that is I had to fight through my pain so that I can move my family out of the environment that I grew up in. Right. I had to be the one who was willing to go through whatever I had to go through to show my family a different side of life. So that weekend when I went back to Penn State, I just put strapped on my boots and I said, look, I, I may have to go through these two years of suffering. But the moment that I get my chance to step out on that football field, I'm going to go out there and be the best football player I can and try to catch up, if not surpass all the people I came into college with. And that's exactly what I did, because. By the time I was a, a senior in, in college, I was um, All-American. I was the defensive player of the year. I was the lineman of the year. And I ended up, I became, you know, Penn State's captain uh, during the 2012 season. I got drafted 53rd overall in the NFL. Now, Dev, what do you think people, why do you think people were drawn to you when you were a captain? Do you think leadership is something that is learned, that is it's it's out there. It's you got to show people and lead people by example. Or do you think mm -hmm. it's something you're born with? No, I, I don't. I think that's the biggest misconception is that is it's something that you're born with. I think that leadership is learned. Um, my first two years at Penn State, like I said, I wasn't I wasn't playing. I was isolated a lot of the time because I was the one doing rehab where everybody else was lifting weights or they're out at practice getting better playing in games. So for the first two years, it's like I wasn't really involved with the team. And then after when I finally got back out on the football field, uh, there was a learning curve because I just took two years off from high school. I haven't played since high school. Now I'm playing at D1 level and I missed two years. So there was a lot that I had to relearn. There was a lot I had to relearn about my body because now there were some big changes I had to go through as far as my knee and my ankle and wearing different braces and protective gear that made me more stiff. Um, so it took me about two years to really turn that corner of, you know, getting in gear and, and getting back to that player that I always knew I was. So I was quiet those two years um, when I was I felt like I wasn't contributing to the team because I felt like it wasn't my place to step up and try to be that leader. That there were people who, you know, put in that work, who earned that um, responsibility before me. But I remember it was my junior year. It was during our bowl game and our seniors were graduating. Our captains were graduating. And I was sitting in my hotel room the night before the game and I was listening to uh, a lot of motivation on YouTube. One in particular was like Ray Lewis. I kept playing his uh, speeches over and over again. And I told myself, I was like, you know what, it's my time. Like these, these seniors are graduating. Um, when we go into the locker room tomorrow, I'm gonna bring the team up and I'm gonna give them a speech and I'm just gonna, you know, give everything that I have on my heart. And I went out there and I did that and I had one of the best games of my college career. 
And the following year or the following season, we had a, a team meeting where we had to vote for captains and I was a unanimous pick by everybody. And what that showed me was that, you know, leaders don't really start out at the front of the line, that leaders one day have the courage to get out from the back of the line and walk up to the front and, and lead their constituents. And that's what I did during that moment. That's incredible. Now, you go from Penn State to the Cincinnati Bengals. So mm-hmm. first question is, do you like Skyline Chili or Gold Star Chili? I hate them both. You hate them both? <laughs> I remember. Listen. I'm about to so, X you off the show right now. So I had, when I got drafted, I got put on the show, Hey Rookie. And the first thing we learned about Cincinnati was the chili, Skyline and Golden Star Chili. And everybody was like, they loved it. So they took us out to the restaurants where they made us try the chili. And it was disgusting. It was like, I feel like you have to be born in that area in order to like the chili because it's a it's different. It's not like spicy. It's like a sweet taste to it, which is something different. I never tasted it before. I hated it. They put chocolate in it. That's right. Do they? But see, look, my dad just flew in right now. He's like, oh, no. Oh, no. We got to get him off. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> well, he needs a little three-way and a little couple of Oh, yeah. Ponies. People love the three-way. Yeah, but yeah. I, that's a good point, though. Sometimes uh, you, you have to get adjusted to that culture. How did you get adjusted to the NFL? What were you going through in your personal life and uh, also on, on your professional life as well? To be honest, that's one of the things that I look back and regret the most is because I don't feel like I was able to get adjusted. Mm. I don't feel like I was able to get acclimated into the NFL because I was dealing with a lot of personal issues. Um, one thing that I didn't touch on is during uh, my senior year at Penn State, I was battling a lot of injuries. Um, I had tore my rotator cuff in my shoulder, so I wasn't able to lift. Um, I blew out my back in pregame warm-up right before we played Ohio State. But I kept going. And the reason why I kept going was if those of you who are watching this remember in 2012, when I was the captain of the team, we went through the whole Sandusky scandal, which was one of the biggest scandals in college football. And as a leader, I didn't want to give up my on my team during um, something that big, something that tough. So a lot of times I fought through the injuries. And I remember when the news first broke about the Sandusky scandal, um, I believe we were like eight and four. Our record was like eight and four, eight and three during that time. And we got picked to go to the Ticket City Bowl in Houston, which is that not that great of a bowl. Like we should have been going to one of the top bowl games, but because of everything that was going on, a lot of the bowls didn't want us to be a part of it because it would bring a negative attention. So we got picked for the Ticket City Bowl and the team decided that they were going to boycott the bowl game because they felt like we were getting punished for something we had nothing to do with. And this, this story didn't really make it out to the public during that time. And I remember my coaches got word that the team wanted to boycott and my defensive line coach called me into a meeting. He was asking me if I could talk the team into going. And at first I was, I I don't know because I felt slighted just like the rest of my team. Like we're getting punished for something we had nothing to do with and nobody's sticking up for us. And I remember leaving that meeting and I went home and I called, you know, the closest people to me, like my dad, um, my future agent that I was going to sign with once I graduated. And I was like, what should I do? Like the team wants to boycott and the coaches want me to talk the team into going. And everybody around me was like, 
don't go to the bowl game. Like you're a projected first round pick. You have millions of dollars on the line. If you go out there and you get hurt, you can blow it all. So I hung up the phone and I slept on it. And when I woke up in the morning, I, I told myself, I was like, man, I, I can't do that. Like, I can't put myself first as a leader. Like I have to put the team, I have to put the university first before my own, you know, aspirations. So I went into, I called a, a team meeting and I talked to the team and I was like, look, I know everybody's upset that we got slighted when it came to this bowl game, but we have one more opportunity to go out there and play with each other. Like we have seniors, we have one more opportunity to wear the blue and white and, you know, go out there and fight for something together. And as somebody who's projected a, a first round pick, I'm willing to risk it all to go out there to play with y'all one more time. And I'm like, because if we sit up here and we quit, if we give up, we're sending a message to the whole university. We're sending a message to the whole Penn State family that it's okay to give up when things get tough. But I'm like, I'm not willing to do that. And I hope y'all not willing to do that either. So we decided to go out and play that bowl game and I got hurt like everybody was telling me. I ended up breaking my toe during one of the practices. So I was battling those injuries going into the senior bowl. I had to cancel my senior bowl invite. I wasn't able to properly train for the combine because I couldn't run and my back was still messed up. So I was battling all those injuries my first couple of years in the NFL. And then I ended up having my daughter diagnosed with cancer. So it was just like I never got time to really get acclimated to the NFL because I was dealing with so much. And it's a different environment it's it's a business versus and and, you know the nca and that uh, we'll call it a a monopoly for now yeah yeah. Uh, (laughs) but uh it it is a different environment and the leadership is different Mm -hmm. Uh, now you're putting others in front of yourself in front of your own pride you you listen to you didn't listen to the people who told you don't go to the bowl game don't this is too risky and and you do that because you're a great person, a great human being, and you know that's best for the team, and you couldn't live without that. Now, when right. you go to the NFL, what type of leadership did you experience? Um, how is it different uh, than, let's say, uh, being led by collegiate coaches and that organization? I, I would say that w- when it comes to the NFL, a lot of the leadership comes within the locker room, mm. not necessarily the coaches. It's like the they may create the culture, that they want the team to have, but it's up to the the team, the players on the team to to live up to that culture. So what was different about the NFL than it was from colleges, like you said, it was more business. It was more in your face business. Like colleges is business, but the NFL is more in your face um, a business. So when it comes to college football, you go to practice together, you eat together, you weightlift together, you do everything, and then you go back home to your dorm rooms, to your apartments, you spend a lot of time together. You're able to build a lot of chemistry together and, you know, create that culture. With the NFL, it's like you go to work, you go home to your family. Like these are grown people with kids, with wives, who they go there to put in the work and then they they go home to their family. So you're not really building that 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 chemistry um, that you build in college. And a lot of times people are out for themselves in the NFL trying to get their money and get out, which was a, a big difference because now you don't have people willing to help you um, make that transition. They're not willing to share a lot of, you know, the tips and tricks that they use in order to last in the NFL because everybody's focused on making their career last as long as possible. 
So now you're in this environment. You just come from Penn State. You're team oriented. You've been the right. leader of the team. You're trying to make this transition. Leah, your daughter, is diagnosed with uh, stage four blastoma cancer. Yeah. What is going through your mind at the time? And what type of people did you rely on to get you through this? Man, that, that was one of the, the toughest times in my life. And the reason why is because I felt like obstacles just get kept getting piled on. Um, like I said, it was crazy because my first year, I ended up getting benched after the eighth game. And the crazy thing is the eighth game we played against the Broncos and I had a breakout game. I had like eight tackles, two tackles for the loss. I made the front page of the paper in Cincinnati and then – you know, one of our veterans came off of injured reserve and they elected to play him the remainder of the year and put me on the bench until the following year, which was it messed up my head. It didn't make any sense to me because in sports, it's all about momentum. Like if you look at Odell Beckham, nobody heard about Odell until he made that catch. And it was like he took off from there because sports is all about momentum, take, taking advantage of that momentum and to shut me down after having that type of game. It didn't make any sense to me, but I, I just accepted it. And I worked hard during the offseason to, you know, play the following year. They ended up letting that veteran go and gave me his spot. And again, I was having a great game against the Detroit Lions. And I remember I went to go tackle Reggie Bush and our linebacker came running full speed and put his helmet into the back of my elbow and it popped out. I dislocated my elbow and I was down for five weeks. So I fought that five weeks to get back out on the football field to experience what it was like to play in the NFL. And then a night game against the Steelers, I was playing a double team and I felt my back pop again. And I ended up having to get back surgery, uh, season in the back surgery just five weeks later. So I'm like, man, what is going on? Like, what am I doing wrong that causes me to continue to go through this type of stuff? But again, I sucked it up and I said, you know what? I'm going to do what I need to do to get back on the football field. I flew home. I had back surgery in Cincinnati. I flew home to Delaware to be with my family. And this was a week later. And I ended up getting rushed to the hospital where I almost died from multiple uh, blood clots in my lungs. And I was completely crushed at this point because I just really didn't understand what was going on. It just felt like everything was being piled on me. Like life was literally trying to break me. Every time I, I tried to find a way to get back up, life found a way to knock me back down. Um, but my wife made a suggestion that maybe we should get back into church. Maybe there's something missing in our lives where, you know, negative things keep happening. So I listened to my wife. We ended up going back to church. Um, I got baptized in Two months later, I faced the biggest obstacle in my life when my daughter got diagnosed with cancer. And I actually was doing all season training. I flew home um, to go to her dance recital because I put her into dancing that off season. And when I was growing up at my games, although my parents got divorced, like I said earlier, every time I looked up in the stands, my parents were sitting right next to each other, cheering me on, cheering my brother on. And to me, that meant the world to me that they could put their differences to the side and come to my games to support me. Like we didn't have a lot growing up. We didn't have a lot like other people around us did, but we had our parents. And that meant 
way more than me than any materialistic thing they could have provided, just knowing that my parents supported my dreams. And I think that made me fight to get to the NFL because I wanted to make them proud. I wanted them to be able to sit in the crowd and brag, like, look, that's my son doing this, that, and the third. So I carried that on into my adulthood when I became a parent. And I wanted to be there for Leah and the crowd cheering her on whenever she had something going on. So I flew home for her dance recital, but we never made it to that dance recital because that morning I ended up taking her to the hospital because she was lethargic and had a fever. And I ended up finding that she had stage four cancer. That's an incredible story. Thanks for sharing that, Devin. And so when you hear this news, when you hear this news, uh, your daughter, your five-year-old daughter has cancer. Mm -hmm. You've been through all these thresholds, these crucible moments we've talked about before, whether you were growing up um, and, and having the police officer touch you with the glove on, mm -hmm. uh, going through injury after season injury after season injury, then getting baptized, and then this happens again. How does one prepare for news like that? What did you do? How did you prepare for that moment? I don't think that you can prepare for something like that, but understanding that life can change at any given moment. What those things showed me early on that I went through is that life rarely goes as we wanted to go. And I think that's why it's so crucial to continue to improve yourself uh, mentally, physically, and spiritually so that you can be prepared for whenever you face adversity. A lot of people make the mistake of trying to prepare for adversity when it happens, when the time is now. Anticipating that, you know, obstacles may happen in your future allows you to accept it faster. Hmm. Um, but when Leah got diagnosed with cancer, it completely crushed me. It was like a, a knockout blow. And to be honest with you, I wasn't able to pick myself up right away. Like for the first two weeks, I was just in the hospital, just going through it. Like, how could this, I didn't think it was real. Like it was just crazy walking down the hallway and you know, you look at the mirror and you see your reflection in, in the mirror or in the window. And you're thinking like, what are you doing here? Like you was just living the American dream playing in the NFL. And now you're here in the hospital and the doctors are telling you that you know, your daughter only has a 50% chance of surviving. So I was completely crushed, but I allowed myself to be crushed during those two weeks, right? Because I feel like a lot of times people make the mistake of adversity happens, they get knocked down, they pop right back up. But my dad was a, a big um, fan of boxing and we used to watch boxing with him a lot when I was a kid. And a lot of times when you see boxers get knocked out, they hurry up and try to get back up and they fall right back down. They're dizzy, falling into the rope. They don't really process what they go through. But, you know, those good boxers, they take advantage of that 10-second rule where they can sit there, lay on the canvas, uh, realize what just happened to them, and when they get up, they have a plan in order to fight again, to continue to make it through those rounds. So that's what I did during those two weeks. I, I laid on the canvas, I took my 10 seconds, and I really tried to think about what I can do in order to fight this, this uh, complete fight. And the first thing I decided to do was to give Leah's fight with Kenza a purpose. Because um, I feel like when you give any goal or any fight that you're going through a purpose that's bigger than yourself, you're more likely to achieve that goal. So what I decided to do was to use um, my platform as an NFL player to really shed light on what it's like for families who are battling you know, childhood cancer because I didn't feel like it was in the forefront. I didn't feel like the media was talking about it enough. And when I sat in the hospital, it was like a lot of families who were going through things that nobody knew about. It was like it was a, a hospital full of the voiceless. And I had a chance to use my voice to give those voiceless families a voice to talk about what they were going through. 
And sometimes, now I had a family member when we were growing up, my cousin who went to my high school, I grew up with stage four leukemia cancer. Mm-hmm. It's almost more difficult on the parents than it is the oh, child. So what was your message to the parents? What did you do to rally the community together and tell us what, what Leah's reactions were? My biggest message to the family is it's not your fault to the parents. Uh, because like you said, it's, it's really hard on the parents because I remember when Leah was first born, it's like when you watch your kid come into this world, it's like as parents, you all take the same oath. It's like without even saying it to the kid, you all take the same oath. You all make the same promise where you're saying you're holding them for the first time. and You're looking at your kid saying that you're going to do everything you can to provide for them. You're going to do everything you can to protect them from harm. I tell everybody it's like when you have a kid, it's like your heart is physically walking outside of your body. Um, so when Leah got diagnosed with cancer, I felt like I felt as a parent because I couldn't protect her for what she was about to go through. And that was the biggest hurdle I had to go through. It was understanding it's not your fault. Cause I used to tell myself, maybe it's the stuff that you was feeding her. Maybe it's the stuff that you uh, introduced her, allowed her to be around that caused her to get cancer. Maybe it was something wrong with you and you passed it down to her genetically. But I had to get, I had this thing called facts over feelings. A lot of times where, you know, we let our feelings consume us instead of looking at the facts. Um, And I had to look at the facts and tell myself that it wasn't my fault. This is not something I I could have prevented, but this is something I can, although I can't stop her from having cancer, I can be her biggest support system. I can be her biggest cheerleader and let her know that she wasn't going to go through this fight by herself. So that was my biggest message to other families is stop blaming yourself but there's nothing that you can do to change the past. The only thing that we have is right now. And what steps are you going to take right now to help your child overcome this battle? So what were the steps that you outlined? What was the playbook that you put yeah. together to get through this as a whole? Yeah, so I already talked about um, giving your battle a purpose. The next one was to fight for four quarters. Like we have something in in football where, you know, we're taught that no matter how tired you are, um, no matter how much pain you're in, you go out there and give it everything you have for four quarters because you never know when the game can change. And I asked my daughter the moment she got diagnosed with cancer to fight for four quarters. And I told her that every day is not going to be easy. You're not going to wake up every day feeling good. You're not going to wake up every day feeling um, like going to treatment, like going to go get chemo. But no matter how bad things get, as long as you're alive, as long as I'm alive, that we're going to fight for four quarters. We're going to do everything that we can to make sure that you overcome this battle. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, another thing was not being afraid to call audibles or a, a pivot in business. Um, I have something called like the AAA, which I think can really help people, you know, um, be those those be those people who are able to overcome adversity, right? So AAA is not the towing company, but it's something that stands for uh, anticipate, adjust, and accelerate. You have to anticipate that things may go wrong. You have to plan for things to go wrong. And then once they do, you have to adjust. And that's what we had to do with Leah's battle with cancer. Like we put her into a clinical trial initially that, you know, the doctors thought, was going to save her life. That was going to eradicate the cancer because it was new. Uh, They had a lot of promise in it. But after four months of high doses chemo and radiation, we ended up getting uh, scans done. And we found out 
that the cancer spread all over her body. Like it, it was initially it was just in her hip, but now it went from her hip to being in her chest, her arms, her her skull, her neck. It was all over the place. And if there was ever a moment where I thought my daughter was going to die, it was during that moment. But before we took on this battle, I anticipated that this may work, although it had uh, this may not work, although it had a lot of promise. Nothing is guaranteed. Um, so I anticipated. So the blow wasn't that hard when I found out that the chemo and the, the radiation, in fact, didn't work. Instead, when the doctors told me that I went back on the computer and I started researching other things that were out there that we can use or other clinical trials that we can put her in that could help us get to our goal. Like sometimes your goal stays the same, but the strategy or the plan to get to your goal, it, it changes. We found a new um, clinical trial. We put her in that clinical trial and we just gave that one everything we had. That's when the accelerate comes in. When you make that adjustment, accelerate and make things happen. And a couple of weeks or a month or two after putting her in a new clinical trial, she ended up uh, going into remission. She was completely, uh, the cancer was completely eradicated from her body. Now, just for our audience right now, how is Leah doing? What is her status? And she's doing great. Um, this past March, March 25th, she reached her five-year mark, so she was finally declared cancer-free. So we don't have to worry about that right now. We can just focus on, you know, just living life and just enjoying every day and moment that we have with each other. Now, Devin, you've shared a lot of adversity that you've overcome in your life on this show today. How has the how have these principles, your faith, your mindset, these pivots, these audibles, how do all these things translate to business? And what are you currently doing uh, with your entrepreneurship gig? Yeah, so my, my struggles in co- combined with the lessons that I learned from football, the structure I learned from football has really allowed me to sell, excel in business. I use these strategies in everything I do. And I talk about a lot of strategies in my book, Still in the Game, Finding the Faith to Tackle Life's Biggest Challenges. But I've been able to, you know, recycle all the pain that I've been through throughout my life and use it to push myself and help push other people to greatness. So um, I've started a foundation called the Still Strong Foundation, where we financially assist families who are battling cancer because of my daughter's battle with cancer. I don't want her to have to go through something like that for no reason. I want to I don't want to look. I feel like, you know, great leaders don't focus on the problems, but they focus on the opportunities. And although, you know, there was a problem with my daughter battling cancer, I, I realized that there was also an opportunity to create some change within the cancer community. And that's what I decided to do with our foundation because a lot of families lose 40% of their household income during the cancer treatment, work-related disruption. So we wanted to make sure that those families were taken care of. Taken care of. And just because my daughter's cancer-free and we're out of that fight, that doesn't mean that the fight against childhood cancer has stopped. Um, I also travel a lot um, speaking at corporate events. Um, just teaching them about how to be more resilient. I think right now during this time is even more important to speak on resiliency as a, a company because a lot of people are going through a lot of things and it's going to be those companies who are able to tap in and turn employees how to become more resilient who see this through or are able to maximize the opportunities um, that are out there. Like I just recently gave a talk to uh, Procter & Gamble and they were sharing how you know, their the home products really surged during this time, 
right? They put a lot of focus. They didn't focus on the things that they weren't excelling at anymore. They wasn't thinking, uh, focus on the things that was losing them money, but they looked at the opportunity in their business model for them to excel and their home products, they put a focus on. And it's been going through a roof because everybody's at home right now and everybody needs these home products in order to take care of the household and, you know, get rid of the germs and stuff that's going on. So just focusing on those opportunities and, you know, taking the knowledge that I have, um, like I said, from football, from my trials and really helping people in their life and, and companies triumph. And I also, one of the, the biggest challenges I had during Leah's battle with cancer was my relationship with my wife. Uh, because a lot of times when you have a child who's battling cancer or going through any type of health issue, it causes a lot of problems, especially within the relationships. Um, a lot of times I see it because as two individuals, we all process things differently, right? We all grieve differently. And sometimes when we don't see our partner grieving the same way that we're grieving, then it causes friction because we want them to grieve. We want them to feel the same pain that we're feeling. So there was a lot of things, a lot of challenges that we faced in our relationship and just being married. And I just felt like we needed to take that information and share it with people out there because a lot of times on social media, everybody, especially influencers, everybody makes their life seem perfect. Everybody makes their relationship seem perfect. So that allows people to look up to other people's relationship and look down on theirs because they think that, their relationship is so bad and everybody else is perfect. So me and my wife decided to start a podcast called the real relationship podcast, where we go out there and we share our struggles with other couples who are just trying to figure it out because, you know, we didn't grow up in a family. Like my parents were divorced when I was in third grade. My wife's parents was divorced a little bit after that. So we didn't get to see what, real love, what real marriage is. So we're navigating these waters by ourselves and we want to share that experience with other people out there. So we started this podcast, which has shot up the charts and really made an impact for people. And the last thing I have going on is my Playmaker University, where I teach people how to become playmakers in the game of life. I, I uh, put together a curriculum um, and people can check it out at becomeaplaymaker.com where I teach people the playbook on how to become uh, basically unbreakable, how to overcome adversity when they face it and just really help them reach their highest potential in life. Dev, you do a lot of things. We've got Playmaker University, we've got the Relationship Podcast, we've got the Foundation. You're impacting a lot of people, especially these uh, families who are dealing with young ones with cancer as well. But I guess the question is not how you're impacting them. How have they impacted you? It, it's given me a new purpose in life because a lot of times when football players, when we look at athletes, we pour so much of our, our lives into the sport. Like you don't become one of the best. You don't make it to the NFL by giving 50% effort, by giving 70% effort. You have to give it 100% in order to become one of the 1% of athletes who ever make it to professional sports. So a lot of my time and focus and energy went into becoming uh, the best football player I, I could because the way I look at it, a lot of people look at it as just playing sports, but well, the way a lot of athletes look at it is, is running a Fortune 500 company. You come out of college and you're automatically making millions of dollars. Like you're running a million dollar company and you're taking care of a lot of people. You're, you're in charge of taking care of a lot of people when you're put in that position. So a lot of us look at, you know, sports as running a, a, a business. Um, 
But when Leah was diagnosed with cancer, it caused me to really look outside of the field, see who I was as a man without the helmet, right, without the jersey, and just seeing the impact that I've been able to make on people's lives, hearing the stories about how I've helped them through some of the struggles, it's helped me grow as a person. It made me realize that life isn't always about the materialistic things, but it's about uplifting the people around you. Do you think that's what's missing in today's business environment? Uh, maybe it's the self-centeredness. I mean, you, you talked about the bowl game uh, mm-hmm. when you had to make a decision about whether it was yourself, your career, your injuries, or play a bowl game for your teammates who you put in the work and the time with. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's something that's missing from today's business entrepreneurs, uh, this idea of self-centeredness or this um, uh, you know, take-all mentality? And do you think there needs to be a little bit more service out there? I think the biggest thing that's wrong with the business world is a lot of companies or a lot of executives are goal driven instead of value driven. Mm. And what I mean by that is a lot of people put focus on the goals and not necessarily the values. So the way I compare it is like if you ever watch the football game, right, like there's sidelines and there's an end zone, right? There's sidelines to keep players in bounds. It's sidelines so to make sure they can't step out of bounds in order to reach their goal. And I feel like a lot of times with businesses, when you put too much focus on your goals, your employees will do anything they can in order to get to the touchdown, right? They'll step out of bounds. They'll do whatever they need to do to get there. And a lot of times that allows the company to crash. If you look at Enron down here in Houston, a lot of them was just focused on setting the goals, reaching their financial goals, and their employees were practicing the wrong things in order to reach those goals, and they eventually crumbled. So what I feel like is missing a lot from business is those sidelines, people focusing on the values that they want to have in their culture. Because if you put a lot of focus on that, then you're able to sustain um your, your growth, you're able to sustain all the things that you're reaching. So I feel like if people put more focus on building up the right culture and not so much on just reaching the results, then I, I feel like you have a great chance of, you know, becoming a, a great business. So these values, and I'm just going to tie this into your purpose, Devin. Your mm-hmm. purpose, it seems like it came from, like we said, these thresholds, these crucible moments, these hard times. How does one identify a purpose? How did you discover yours and what advice would you give to somebody who's just trying to figure out theirs? Yeah, so I, I think that the, the values and, and purpose are two different things. So i give you an example from my life. Before I made it to the NFL, I remember when I was sitting in my living room and um, I had watched an interview with Dave Chappelle and Oprah. And she told, yeah, I watch Oprah sometimes. <laughs> um, but she told him, if you don't know who you are, this is when he was talking about walking away from um, the Chappelle show, who offered him $50 million. And she told him, if you don't know who you are before the money and fame comes, then you'll never know who you are. And when I heard that, I realized I had an opportunity to make a lot of money. And if I allowed myself to go into the NFL without really knowing what I stood for, what my values were, then I will allow myself to be uh, I will allow myself to get lost in it. So one day I sat down in my living room, I wrote down what I valued and the top three things that I valued was uh, God, my family and impact. And so when Leah got diagnosed with cancer, a lot of people always ask me this and it's it's surprising that people ask me this and it just lets me know just how there's a lot wrong with society this day when they always met 
asked me, man, how did you give up? Was it hard giving up, you know, the, the American dream to be there for your daughter? And I'm like, no, no, because that's my, I value my family more than I do football. Yeah, but like, if I lose football, if I lose the money that comes with football, there's always ways I can make money back. There's always ways I can try to get football back in my life. But if I miss out on time with my daughter and something happens with my daughter, then, you know, I can't get that back. Time is not something that you can get back. So understanding what you value will lead you to your purpose. Like sometimes the final, I didn't know what my purpose was. It's a fight. Like there's things that you have to go through in your life um, that helps you, you know, find your purpose. And a lot of times people say your purpose is something that you do every single day and you don't mind doing it, that it's easy for you to do. But for me, purpose has been a struggle. It's been hard. Like success is not easy. When I found my purse, there was a lot of struggles that I had to go through in order to fulfill that that purpose. And I'm still going to do it right now. I'm constantly trying to grow as a leader. I'm constantly trying to grow as a business owner. I'm constantly trying to grow as a husband, as a father, as a cancer advocate. So finding your purpose is not easy. It takes a lot of time for you to be still because the, the world is on the go. Everybody's trying to move. So you don't really have a, a, a chance to really assess your life. So just being still and looking at how you can take everything you've been through, all the knowledge and experience you've been through to really impact the world and you'll find your purpose. Self-discovery, continuous learning, trying yeah. to impact the world. Devin, we're in the fourth quarter of this podcast. Let's wrap this up. What is your definition of a real oh. leader? Man, so for me, it's not a, a, a profound um, definition, but for me, you know, real leaders are lifetime students um, who use their knowledge and their experiences really to help people unleash their full potential, whether it's a, a, a group of people, whether it's a business. You just take everything that you learn throughout your life, throughout your triumphs, throughout your downfalls, and you use it to really help people maximize their life and reach their full potential. Dad, it's been a pleasure having on you, on you on the show today. We're going to have you stick around for some questions after this. Okay. But for Devin Still, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, help people unleash their full potential. And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Devin. Thank you. And thank you, Real Leaders, for listening to this episode with Devin Still. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you want to get involved, folks, go online to Devin Stills Foundation. It's at stillstrongfoundation.org. Again, folks, stillstrongfoundation.org. And Devin hung around for the next 10 to 15 minutes, actually, on this episode because he knows all of these episodes are streamed live on our new Crowdcast platform. That's right, folks. Devin hung around for another, not another 10, 15 minutes, answered our fans, our followers, our listeners' direct questions and made sure that he made their time well worth it. So if you want to be that follower next time who asks that question, go online to realleaders.com, go to the podcast tab, and RSVP for an event with an upcoming real leader. You will not want to miss it. Lastly, folks, I want to give a quick shout out to Tamara G, who on Monday left a review. She says, fresh stories, real people. Real Ears finds people who are truly inspiring and tells their stories to shine a path forward for anyone looking to be a more conscious capitalist and consumer. That's what we're all about tomorrow. Thanks for leaving the review. And please, folks, let's get to 50 
by the end of August. That's it for me. Thanks for being a Relator and stay tuned for the next episode. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real